Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Mental Breakdown, where we take a break from reality to talk about sports. I'm Bryce, and that's and Liam. Can we start that again? That was really bad. I didn't realize you. No, were no, no, no. We keep it in. We keep it in. We're going. Okay. So, last week we talked about the Six Nations. We talked about a lot of stuff, and we ended up using, um, if I recall correctly, what did we talk about? What last time we last time we chatted? It was all about. Um... It was all about team culture, wasn't it? Yeah, and what what, what was the sport? It was rugby. <laughs> it was Six Nations. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We talked about a lot of stuff on top of that with cricket and other things, um, which blended into which I thought was a really good discussion. I, I'm wild. I forgot it. Um, a lot going on in my life at the moment is probably why. But today, I think we can keep up. We can do a little quick brief mention of the Six Nations. Um, Scotland beat Italy, but didn't play particularly well. Played okay, got our bonus point, which is nice. Um, Ireland beat England due to a red card, partially, but that was like the most blatant red card I've ever seen. Yeah, it was. It was like it. It feels harsh, sort of, because obviously it's not like an intentional one, but uh, it was just incredible. So clumsy, incredibly bad tackle technique. So, um, and Tad Byrne, which is who it was on, right? No, it was on um, G- um, Jimmy Ryan, wasn't it? Oh yeah, 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 Matt Ryan. J- yeah, Ryan. Uh, he, uh, I said Matt Ryan, Matt quarterback. Ryan. Uh, he's like six five, so like to hit him in the head, you have to be not even trying to go low. Like th- there's zero attempt to go low. Yeah, and you sort of feel like it's a little bit of justice because he was obviously concussed for the rest of the game, wasn't he? He was proper like sparked out. So kind of sucks for him though, because yeah. like he's he's had concussion issues and things like that. It's just really. Really, just like an all-around unfortunate situation. Yeah, I, I guess. It's... Other than obviously, it helped Ireland win, yeah. which is justice, <laughs> yeah. but it well, kind of sucks in the long term. I don't know whether it's worth taking it for the Ireland win or not, but. So yeah. let's think. That puts does that put Ireland in, in with a shout? It does because they've only lost once. Okay, so France are still on the, uh, the 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 on the way to their Grand Slam though, so we'll we'll see what happens there. That's that's the big one. Which who are they playing? Uh, they are playing England in Paris. Ooh, ooh, England! If England upset France and I- and Ireland get a bonus point against us, I think that wins them the thing, right? I think so, yeah. But I can't take it if England go to France and win. So, um, as much, <laughs> I just don't want things to happen like that. Can you imagine? Like, just if, say, if, just if say England they got can... our sloppy seconds. We beat them in France last year. It's just they got our sloppy seconds. Can you imagine how like how loud like England fans will be if they go to? France <laughs> Yeah, but Ireland wins the Six Nations, so and they we we beat them, so it doesn't even matter. Yeah, true, true. I to be honest, I just want to finish above England again for the third year yeah, in a row. That'd be nice. Uh, it'd be nice to beat Ireland just to get that kind of monkey off the back. But yeah, I I just don't see it happening no. with the way Scotland are playing right now, the way Ireland are playing. I just don't see it happening. No, it's not happening. We were still pretty sloppy against Italy, but we won because we were better than Italy in individual moments, really. To be honest, they they were pretty good overall, but they they was just like after the game was over, like they got really sloppy, and I, I felt like they should have, especially once Hastings and White came on, they I feel like they should have had more run, but then once they did come on, it just it was chaos. Yeah, yeah, it it happens though, doesn't it? That you like teams just switch off when they know they've won with twenty minutes to go, and it makes for yeah a little bit. Of you got the bonus point. There's nothing more to play yeah, for. Exactly. Uh, then there was obviously a wild week week and a half of football developments due to the issues with Chelsea and Roman Abramovich. Um, 
as someone who is somewhat closely tied to that, it's really an interesting period where I just kind of like, I'm not worried about it because like the club will be fine. And like, if we just go back to a mid table club, that doesn't bother me at all. It would suck to like get into relegation fights, but I mean, we've kind of been there before. I don't think that's a possibility. I think, um, I don't think so either. Two and a half billion pounds is a huge investment. I know. I, I, I've already seen as well um, rumours that the government are going to relax restrictions on the sale to allow him to, to sell it. So Yeah, they've already authorised all of that stuff, and Roman's already given the go-ahead. I think that what's happening is the bids came in by this... They come are supposed to come in by this Friday, and then they go through the process of sorting through them. Um, from what I've read... There's basically three genuinely serious bids, one by a Saudi consortium, which that does not sound fun. <laughs> and I completely, completely negates the point of him yeah. selling it. Like he was specifically saying like he wants it to no longer be a political issue because he doesn't want the club to be in trouble like this ever again. And so selling to the Saudis just seems like it, the only reason they would do that is if the government made them do it, I think. Um, but then there was two American groups, one of which was linked to a can this candy fella in yeah. London. Uh, and another one led by Todd Bully uh, and the Dodgers ownership group, which that one I am, ex and, and that group also is connected to a Swiss billionaire and connected to a London um, real estate mogul, I guess, uh, which puts us in, which would be, I think that one just makes the most sense, period. Yeah, yeah. I think it's about, because the interesting thing is, right, that this has all happened, what, two or three months after the Saudis had been um, approved to take over Newcastle. And you could argue yeah. there's extreme parallels. I mean, what, uh, on the day yeah. that, or a day like after identical. this decision was happening, uh, sorry, a day after the government took this kind of step, um, it was announced that was it, 81 people had been um, executed in Saudi Arabia. So Yeah. And of uh, course, the, but the government can't do anything about that because if they admit that the Saudi Arabia are doing terrible things, they have to admit that they're the ones providing them with weapons to yeah. cause these situations to happen. So that's all politics that I don't think we necessarily need to get into. But uh, yeah, I, I, there's, there's extreme parallels. Um, but I think it's about, I, I don't, I, I'm thankful for Roman. I've been a Chelsea supporter since way before him, since like the late 90s. Um, when I was, you know, eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old with, because of Gianfranco Zola and his magic. So it, it's not, it's about time and I'm thankful for what he's done, but it is like, it's time that like football kind of decides what they want to do about this stuff. Yeah. I think to, I guess a good way to kind of finish up this, this bit about Chelsea is I saw some interviews with Chelsea fans and they were making some good points. Actually. I know obviously they don't want sanctions on their club, but they sure. said, what's changed from January? What's changed since Russia invaded yeah. Ukraine? Nothing, because all the information that uh, Abramovich is being kind of pulled up on has been available for a decade or so. You yeah, know, it's, since it's, before, it, I mean, since happened. before he even bought the club, those so, stories started coming out. So, so it's it's a positive step, I think, to to get someone like Abramovich and his relations with with Russia out of influence in the uk um but it's it's and honestly some of his relations with israel too like he funds some of these groups that yeah. are trying to like eliminate palestinians like that's that was the like the most like i knew about all the other stuff with him and you just kind of have to accept it but then within the last two or three years the stuff about the palestinians came out and that was like the most disappointing thing and like i am super thankful that he made the club to be as 
good as it is winning the Champions League twice, dream come true, especially from where we were at when I first started sporting the club. But in the end, like football kind of has to decide what it wants to do about this stuff. Yeah. It has to decide what it wants to be. Yeah, it's it's kind of, yeah, we're, we're due a bit of a reckoning in football about ownerships. And um, hopefully this kind of starts the conversations moving forwards. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good, I think that was a good place to wrap it up. Next up, we can talk a little bit. I think our next subject is going to be golf. Um, right now they're playing a players championship, which is on a Monday because they got rained out a whole day and it's the most chaotic leaderboard. And it was a super fun tournament. we got the masters coming up, which will probably what we talk about next. You've been picking up a little bit of golf, haven't you? I have done. I've not as of late. Um, it's been a bit harder because um, I moved into the flat into the middle of Manchester where there's very little golf courses within, within walking distance. So I've not been playing as much. Um, you know what that means, right? What time for you to get a driver's license, dog? <laughs> well, funny you should say that. I have my driving test on Sunday, so. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So um, it it might be a real realistic thing, like in the space of six days or so. Nice. Then you'll be able to get out and golf again. I'm actually right now dressed to go golfing because I'm going to go play nine holes when we're done here. <laughs> yeah. I, I I just I haven't had the the time or I don't know. Yeah. It's 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 been difficult. And when you're first picking it up. It takes a lot of some serious practice to get to a place where it's fun. Oh, 100%. It's fun even when you're not good. But, like, it takes a little bit to even have a playable shot. And, like, the driving range alone can be fun. But golf is best on a course. And it takes a little bit of dedication to get there. And if you don't have time, like, it's it's tough. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm a competitive person. And I like to try and be good at the things I do. And I hate when I'm bad at it. Absolutely. I'm the same way. When I was playing golf, I ended up going to the driving range maybe three or four times a week just because I was really bad at it and I wanted to get better. And you can kind of see the difference. But then what was killing me was I could feel, you know, sometimes you'd have a busy week or sometimes mm-hmm. you just have a, a period of two weeks where you can't really go to the driving range and you go out and play golf and you feel like you've not picked up a club in about six months. Like yes. it, it feels such a, a difficult sport because you just have yes. to constantly be in that rhythm. It's why it's kind of one of those things where like people who golf and like are actually like enjoy golfing a lot. They are like, it's like the only thing they do. It's like their only hobby outside of their normal lives and stuff. Like it becomes something that they are obsessed with. Like my brother-in-law is a plus golfer. Um, He's kind of my swing coach and like, it's, it's literally his only hobby outside of, you know, the basics. Like he, like he'll come home from work, whatever, and just drive straight to the range. Uh, he has a kid now, so he doesn't have as much time, obviously, but he's still a plus golfer because of that kind of... But it's one of those things where the, it's a sport that you have your whole life because it's not as physically demanding as others. And for as as sports psychologists and people in that field, it is by far the most fascinating sport to compete in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's such... I mean, you could feel it. You can feel it as rookies, as... Um... As newbies to the sport, you can feel how mentally kind of challenging it is. Never mind, yes. As a as a professional going and trying to perform to to the highest level in under so much pressure, um, like top pros, uh, top pros, like they're not going to be good at other sports because they can't physically handle it as well. But they will be as mentally tough as any athlete in the world, and in a lot of ways, will be smarter athletes than pretty much anyone in the world. Oh, 100%. And I mean, to be honest, I even get psyched out when there's people waiting on the hole behind me. Yeah, when I'm that, that freaks me out too. 
<laughs> I can't imagine like, you know, going out to take the first drive in a Ryder Cup tournament with like that whole crowd behind Oh you. God, yeah. Apparently the way the Ryder Cup works is it just is completely different than the others. Uh, but we'll be spending probably next podcast talking about the Masters, which is my favorite tournament. And then we'll probably have another one in July to talk about the Open Championship for our European contingent, which we don't have, but we'll hopefully develop. Yeah, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun. But what we're talking about today, and I, this is where I wish I had a soundboard. I'm gonna have to look into some research and get a soundboard with a bunch of clips because I just want to play the Christmas song. It's the most wonderful time of the year because this is when it's actually the most wonderful time of the year for me. The NCAA basketball tournament is starting this Thursday and I could not be more excited. So it's the most wonderful time of the year for me because it's actually starting to get warm in England slowly. So a slightly different reason, <laughs> but um, cricket I'm up. excited because I feel like basketball is always something that I've, I've, it was very similar to American football to me. Like it's something that's kind of a bit I've never really been part of. You can kind of look at it and look at it as an outsider, and you'll see the odd kind of like game, and you think it's interesting, but never get in. Whereas something like this big tournament gives you a reason to start watching, doesn't it? Gives you a reason to to get involved and potentially feel something for a team. So I'm excited to to, to kind of see how that goes, even if games will be very late at night for me. Yes, uh, to, they won't actually. So. The first thing you're gonna to have to understand is starting on they'll they'll like a lot of the primetime games will be late at night, but for the first week and t- like two weeks of the tournament, especially the first week, uh, you're gonna to get tons of afternoon games. It basically starts at noon Eastern time, so five o'clock your time, and it goes all day. So literally, as I finish work at five o'clock, I'll be able to switch it straight. Yes, on. it is sixty-eight team tournament, so the games are going constantly. <laughs> okay well that's actually that changes my life yeah and this is why it's the best time of the year it's like if you're a basketball person and being from indiana born and raised playing basketball like and having a pretty deep understanding of the sport like this is i consider this one of my expertises <laughs> it's just basketball for 12 straight hours and it's wonderful yeah it's it's i'm sure i'm gonna learn a lot to be you honest. will and you know what we should just jump when we when we start watching we should just jump and discord or whatever and just watch them together because then i can explain stuff to you okay yeah that's a good shot actually but famously the NCAA tournament being one and done games is the biggest crapshoot in the world 68 teams <laughs> and college level athletes collegiate level athletes so 19 to 23 year olds and the overwhelming vast majority of the players in it this is their biggest game of their lives yeah the stakes can be too much happier. 99% of them are not making the NBA. It's quite a quite a lot of pressure for them to handle it 1920, isn't it? It is. And that's and so you have collegiate level athletes who under intense pressure who are this is like for a lot of them it's literally their last game and they're trying to figure out how to try and do to succeed and trying to show some consistency. And so that's what we're going to talk a little bit today is pre-performance to try and deal with that pr- pressure. We've talked about in-game performance pressure. We've never talked about preparation. So that's what we're going to talk about today. It's it's a super interesting topic because it's almost something that gets a little bit lost, doesn't it? You know, there, there's so much focus on the game itself and potentially how to cope when those situations of pressure and stress actually happen. Whereas there's plenty of things that people can be doing beforehand to kind of get them into the right mindset and the right mind frame to to perform um and yeah i think it, it's a really really interesting topic for me i think pre-performance routines yeah and um kind of like... it's one of those things where a lot of people are like oh of course that you know 
should be something that everyone knows because you think about coaches doing their tournament game prep and tactical preps or whatever you want to call it, uh, drawing up their game plans. But there's not, but people don't realize like how much mental stuff you can do to help yourself. Yeah. And I guess you could argue as well with this being kind of a college sport, there's kind of less of a focus on that mental side, or at least there's less funding to be able to go and have that top tier mental kind of skills coach coming in and prepare everyone for, for kind of a, for these big games. Somewhat, but a lot of schools have started developing counseling. They, they you basically use their student counseling centers okay. um, to hire psychologists that work for specific sports like Indiana and Purdue, both schools in Indiana. Um, Purdue being what I'm somewhat connected to and IU where I got my degree have psychologists that work um, within the system. So like uh, there's even um, at IU, there's a minor program in their PhD programs and those students work with their athlete with the athletes. So that would include the basketball team. Um, There's also, you also end up, but what ends up happening though is that it's, it is lesser level. Like it's not, you're not spending 60 grand to hire, you know, Bob Rotella (laughs) to walk you through stuff. Um, it's it's not that kind of level. Yeah, I guess it's harder to kind of personalize and individualize it when you're not having it at that level. Um, so I, I don't know whether that's almost like one. Th- w- would you say that's potentially a gap between some of the bigger colleges in in this kind of March Madness brackets and some of the smaller ones that kind of like mental skills coach? Or would you say everyone has kind of a similar similar resource? I would probably say that is a decent gap. Um, not it, It's not just because like the bigger schools will pay for it because the bigger schools will have more PhD programs, research programs where they can get the students in to do that kind of thing. Like Florida State has a PhD in it. West Virginia has a PhD in it. Um, so like they'll, they'll bring in their students from that. But other universities like uh, like Purdue doesn't have a PhD in sports psychology. So they're not going to have somebody on like that. They're going to have to bring somebody in from outside. So it, but the smaller schools won't have that resource. So it, it, it probably is a decent gap. It's not the biggest, but it's probably a part of it, sure. Well, because it's interesting, because obviously, like you mentioned, some of these some of these games will be the biggest of, of some of the players' careers because they might come from a small college and they might have obviously made it through into this stage of the tournament and and be playing against people they've never played or, you know, a skill they've never played against. So I guess that's a very different kind of pressure and a very different thing to face than face an expectation like a team like Gonzaga would face that they're kind of expected to get very far. Which I would say the expectation pressure is probably higher. You say it's um, Like, yeah, because historically the tournament has tons of upsets like this. And it's because what will happen is a small school, like uh, just the last couple of years, Loyal Chicago um, made super deep runs into the tournament, upsetting, you know, much higher seeded, much higher caliber teams. Um, and it's because you come in and as a smaller team, you play loose. You don't because like you don't have anything to lose. Literally, for some of them, just making the tournament is enough. Yeah. But to be fair, like when I was doing my reading on them, um, I'm trying to trying to see kind of what the teams were and and uh, and how well they were. I think ESPN had no description for two or three of them. So you can tell that they almost are that kind of type yeah. of team who done well to make it even this far. There were a couple. They call them bubble busters. Where they get on a run in their in their conference tournament, like Virginia Tech's a good one. Virginia Tech probably would not have made the tournament, but they went on. They won four games in four days to win the ACC conference tournament. Um, and there's there's going to be a couple of those ter- teams. Like uh, was it Davidson? Now Richmond. Richmond beat Dayton, which that was an upset. 
and then Dayton ended up being on the bubble, and I don't think they got in. Um, but like, there's like that happens a significant number where you uh, have this team go on a run, and then just them being there loosens them up so much, and they play so well. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm fully expecting Virginia Tech to go on a run, and they're going to be Purdue's second round team if we win against Texas. They play Texas; they're probably going to beat Texas in my head, and then. We Purdue, if they beat Yale, would have to play him, and I fully expect Virginia Tech to beat us. Like, and as, and that would be crushing to me personally for a dozen reasons, <laughs> but, it, but I I honestly fully expect it to happen. Like just so you like just just to clarify, I'm a Purdue fan, grew up a Purdue fan. My dad went to Purdue, my brother went to Purdue, um, and this is probably the best tournament team Purdue has had since like 1980, 19. 97 i think um that we've had some good teams in the middle of that uh like made in the lead eight been the sweet 16 a dozen times but we always have the worst look purdue is by far the biggest and best program in college basketball to never win a national championship in the ncaa and part of that is because every time it seems like the weirdest shit happens like that 97 team had glenn robinson or no that that was the brian cardinal um and we had to play Wisconsin for the fourth time that year. And we beat them the three other times. So it's like, it's really hard to beat a team that many times in a row. And then you have, uh, and then Glenn Robinson in the, in the 90s, we were going to play Duke. Uh, we were probably the better team. Glenn Robinson was an all-time great player. He wrenches his back, met like messing around in the hotel the night before. Plays terrible against Duke, they lose. <laughs> Then you have Robbie Hummel in 2009 and 2010, and then 2000, 2008, 2009, and 2010. 2008, he tears his ACL. In the middle of the season, the team goes on to lose. 2009, he tears his ACL in the preseason, six months after he's recovered, uh, and they go on to, to not be as good. And both of those teams, I guarantee you, at least one of them won a national title. They were an unbelievably good team. Then you followed up with uh, 2006. 16 I think yeah 2016 we have a great team again and then Isaac Haas seven foot two center in the first round against a team we're blowing out gets a pretty dirty play but it's a play that happens all the time in basketball where he gets hooked and falls and Lance slams his elbow into the ground breaks his elbow can't play then you follow it up with uh 2019 the last tournament uh we were in which is the last, let me think, 2020 didn't happen, so 2021, 2019, so two tournaments ago, one tournament ago, I guess. Anyway, Carson Edwards leads the team, goes nuts. I'm in Scotland at like 4 a.m. watching this game. And <laughs> yeah, I remember that. It comes down to we're up three points or two points with 1.6 seconds left. We foul to make sure they can't win the game on a three. Uh, he makes his first free throw. He's a 90% free throw shooter. He's, he has said after the game he did not mean to miss. He misses, and he misses in a way that perfectly makes it so that the rebound is 50-50 and gets tipped out to half court. Kihei Clark for Virginia makes an unbelievable play at half court pass, and they toss it in at the buzzer, go to overtime, and we lose. Like, <laughs> this is Purdue basketball in a nutshell. is unbelievably bad luck, even with unbelievably good teams and players. 
I'm pretty glad I didn't predict Purdue to win now. Yeah, it's a good prediction. But this is the best <laughs> tournament team we've had in a long time. Jaden Ivey is a top five NBA draft pick. He's unbelievably good, but they have some consistency issues, particularly with defense and turnovers. And defensively, they struggle to defend the three-point line, which makes Virginia Tech a nightmare because that's the only way they score. And they turn the ball over, which makes Kentucky, our two-seed, a difficult team to play against because they get a lot of turnovers and they drive the ball mm-hmm. and kick a lot. So it's basically... Uh, we had and, and this year, we had four buzzer-beating three-point losses, including a half-court buzzer-beater and a banked-in three. And if we win those games, we're probably a one or a two-seed and don't have to play Kentucky. Right. So, like, again, the luck is stacked against us, and that's why I'm fully expecting it to happen this way. And the expectations came into the season, and they failed to win the regular season tar- uh, championship because of the banked, because of the four buzzer-beating threes or late-game threes. And then... They lose the conference tournament championship because we turned the ball over too much against Iowa. And that happened just last night. So I'm fully expecting us to lose Virginia Tech in the second round and my heart to be crushed. Well, if you keep your expectations low, then if you keep on winning, then you could just have It's not possible. I'm an eternal like optimist. <laughs> yeah, you're like an England fan, aren't you? Before a tournament going, oh, like, we're not going to win. Then something happens and you're like, we're the best team in the world. No, I, I'm only saying this because... Like I'm, I'm. It's a genuine possibility that they lose, but it. But Purdue as a team can beat literally anyone if they just don't turn the ball over. You make it sound such a simple game. It, in the end, it really is because no matter how good a defense you play, if you just hit the shot, it doesn't matter. Like that's basically basketball in a nutshell. Which is why individual talent can be such a huge difference in the game. So how would you, how would you prepare Purdue then if if this is something that's kind of consist like you because you're almost getting into the type of the stereotype that like the all blacks had a few what, 20 years ago where the pre- perennial runners up how would you prepare that kind of winning mindset and mentality in a purdue team heading into this tournament it honestly it kind of starts with matt painter matt painter has a habit of um getting flustered in games he really wants to win where the rest of the season he is calm and patient and kind of is just building a program. Like he's not as great as an in-game coach as he is at building a program and getting a team to play well over the course of a season, which is why we win a lot of Big Ten championships but don't make deep tournament runs. Um, Because like one game going poorly and he has to make an adjustment, he sometimes struggles to find the answer. Right. Um, So it would partially start there. and, And it would start way before the tournament. It would start six months ago. I'd be getting him to think about the tournament in his regular season games and start making this like on court decisions that way. Cause he has this habit of being very loyal to players who have worked really hard through the program. And there's a couple guys on the team right now who should not be playing as much as they are because they are a net negative um, overall, but they're like juniors and seniors and have kind of earned their right to be here and have been good players overall. But right now they're just in bad form and need to be dropped. If you will. Right, I see. So it would start there. And then the second part is that when I'm working with the players, uh, my thing is it, it depends on the player. And this is one of those things why I love basketball and like why I was thinking about my own prep when I go into games is I have to be like amped up a little bit. I got like the games I played best is when someone talks shit to me and then I'd get a little upset. I'd start demanding the ball and I'd start finding, I'd actually be trying to find a solution whenever I'm not like pissed off like that. I'm kind of just like, Oh, I'll come down and set a screen now. See you pick and roll, see what happens. Let's see what happens. I'll stand on the perimeter now. I'll go post up. Like I'm just kind of like making decisions that I feel like doing. But then when somebody pisses me off, I'm like, all right, what's the actual answer? And then I'll do the same play six times in a row because they can't stop it. 
so you're saying it's quite like if you're trying to prepare someone before a game it's very individualized to each person yeah it kind of has to be um the visualization uh, which we'll talk about uh the method of method to do that but that kind of stuff has to be personalized like we know that um like in game pre like right before games i would start is when i would get the amped up stuff and i'd start talking about you know stomping on their throat they think they can play with us they're not good enough like that kind of thing to get you amped up and to feel like you got a chip on your shoulder a little bit uh but pre but like the day before and stuff it's all meditation it's all visualization it's all same meals it's all relaxation because you don't want to blow your load and be tired stuff see that's an interesting one that doesn't get talked about too much isn't it having like the same meal remember a lecture that we had that um I can't remember which lecture it was, Bryce, but they chatted about, was it that he found out their runner, I think it was, um, performed best when she had like quite, wasn't it quite an unhealthy meal before, but because it was what she enjoyed. Well, Usain Bolt, one of the things is, uh, I don't remember that specific one, but Usain Bolt famously in Beijing in the Olympics, because he didn't know what food he could trust or eat, he just had uh, McNuggets from McDonald's every for before every meal. And then obviously he broke world yeah. records in that. In that and I guess Olympics. Jamie Vardy with his uh, Red Bull and and all that tactic. And <laughs> cigarettes. <laughs> so um, it's a it's a really fascinating one for me because you could have you could actually have someone having a really unhealthy food before they got and perform, but it could be the best thing for them because it kind of grounds them and it gives them that kind of level of regularity, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm the kind of person who like I would need to eat light. Like I would do like chicken salad the night before, maybe like chicken with some pasta, but it'd be like butter noodles. It wouldn't be like super heavy. Yeah. Like that's what, that's what I would do. Um, but yeah, again, it's stuff that like is specialized by the team and by the person. Um, so let's do a little bit about visualization real quick. Cause everybody kind of, I think when we say that people kind of instantly have a thought in their head about what it is. And it's a very common thing where you're just kind of like, everyone does this, right? You're, um, think about cricket, for instance, and you're like, uh, you're reliving something you, uh, a, a match you had, right? You do that, don't you? Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it's, there's there's two different things you can do with visualization. I've found, at least when I've tried to apply it, it's kind of visualize a past successful performance and try and replicate it from there. Or it's visualizing kind of, I guess it's on a similar way, but what kind of you want to happen sort of thing, you know, you stood at the end of the year and up and you're trying to visualize in your head, you know, the perfect spot you want the ball to land, that type of thing. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's quite a common thing in cricket. I found it, it's been very helpful for me. Yeah. That's a good way to put it is like you both, what you want to happen and something you've done before. And like, it's one of those things where, um, some people end up like I was, I've been listening to a podcast called chasing scratch, about a couple mm-hmm. of dudes in their mid thirties who are trying to become scratch golfers. And it's a very entertaining, very funny, but they are, all over the place mentally. But that's part of what makes it so funny is that they're just all over the place. And so what ends up happening is you have um, them visualizing. Like one of them made a joke that like when he's laying in bed at night and he's visualizing around at a particular golf course that that he goes to, that he can't think of he shoots an 85 in his head because if he like it's just how hard the golf course is that he's like, I can't hit this shot. And like that's the kind of thing you don't want to do. You want to be visualizing the successful ones. You want to visualize your round when you shot 72 or like if you're a basketball player when you shot 30 points or cricket and you went for a century. 
you don't want to be sitting there dwelling on on the negatives. And historically, like this Purdue team just got in the last tournament, got upset by a team they shouldn't have lost to. And it's because the some of the more experienced players played really badly. And once again, those same same experienced players have kind of been struggling late season. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's one of those things where like they have this baggage and they cannot visualize the North Texas game. They have to visualize what they want to happen. Yeah, I mean, it, it's very easy to get into that bad habit, isn't it, of, of the night before kind of remembering or looking back on, on upon what previously happened and thinking that's something I'm trying to avoid and it's definitely something you kind of shouldn't really be doing before you perform. Don't think about something you can avoid. I mean, it's uh, that very famous... Um, I can't remember what study it was in psychology, just in basic psychology of, do you know, if, if you've got a box and someone goes into it, walks out of a room and goes, don't think about the box while I'm gone. Obviously, the only thing you're going to do is think about that box. It's a kind of similar mentality when you're thinking about losses and think, thinking about trying to avoid stuff. Do you know, if you if you start thinking about things you've done badly, it's, I think it's only going to end one way. You need to really look at those kind of past successful performances and motivate yourself through that. Yeah, it becomes a kind of... Uh self-fulfilling prophecy part of the reason that happens is because of the studies that link uh the neural activity in the same pathways that control your muscles that activate when you're actually doing the activity so when you're doing visualization and you're imagining yourself taking a jump shot the same pathways that activate when you actually take a jump shot activate during that visualization and so if you're visualizing a negative form of it the same pathways when you do the negative form of it will activate again yeah and i I think it's fascinating for me hearing that because uh, what you can actually link that to almost is injuries as well. I, I don't know if you've heard that, Bryce, about how people who do something like imagery and visualization while they're, they're long-term injured can actually come out mm-hmm. the other side a better performer because they've mentally yeah. rehearsed and they've mentally kind of practiced it all the way through that they've sharpened up their mental skills um, and they're kind of ready to, to go and do things almost in that quicker way um mentally rather than obviously what they would have done if they weren't injured and just continued to play so it's really interesting to hear that yeah you kind of reflect those neural patterns it's yeah it, it's crazy the power of the power of the mind in that sort of sense yeah i was thinking of dr martindale's judo client when you were talking about that how she had like a terrible acl injury and was rehabbing it and then was worried about how she was going to come back to practice and they started by just visualizing stuff before she could actually do full contact mm-hmm. and so then once she came into the full contact it was like she hadn't missed a beat yeah straight back into it yeah i, I was also thinking uh when you're talking about that when we were talking about the you have to be kind of positive with your visualization is the positive self-talk that goes alongside it is you kind of have to like talk yourself up and a good example um that's been happening that happened this week is the players championship in golf um the weather was insane yeah it's like 30 miles an hour winds like it was crazy and if you got a certain draw where if you played the uh morning afternoon group of the first so morning first day afternoon second day that's the groups you were drawn into you had a huge advantage because you weren't gonna have to play in certain weather because of the way the rain washed some stuff out and the way the scheduling ended up working Mm -hmm. and justin thomas who had been put into the afternoon morning group which meant he had to play in the horrific weather uh was doing an interview and he used really really good positive self-talk where they asked him about like how do you feel about that like you realize it's kind of bad luck and he went yeah it's kind of bad luck but there's nothing i can do about it the only thing i can do is focus on me doing my best uh, every time and just sticking in and doing my best uh and it was a really good uh tweet i saw from uh, someone 
uh, who I think it works in the mental side of golf. And he's talking about how it's a, a glimpse into the positive, the art of positive self-talk where it's one grounded in reality, focused on what you want versus what you don't want. And it's repeated. It's repeatable. And so that's the, the visualization is very similar where you want to be, it's grounded in reality. So it's things you know you can do. Like I'm not going to sit here and dream of myself dunking and it's focused on what I want. So I'm going to picture myself hitting jump shots and it's repeated because that's kind of, and it has to be repeatable so you can do the same scenarios over and over again. Um, and it's kind of interesting the parallels between those two and how positive self-talk can be useful in the same way visualization can. So it, just to, to obviously continue the theme on visualization. Um, so for part of my research um, about a year and a half ago, I did a, um, a systematic review on, on the way that psychological interventions were run in medical education. And part of what we found was, you know, that imagery could really be split into two kind of bits um, in, in, as, as part of kind of a pre-performance routine. It was kind of um, seen as a warm-up potentially. So, do you know, something you do on the day or on the morning of things where you kind of make sure that you're ready, but also kind of obviously people were, were using imagery in the moment itself as well. So you think about, you know, standing at a free throw line and, and waiting for that free throw to, to win the game, do you know, people were potentially using it in those kind of two quite similar but but distinct um, purposes and um, it's just really interesting to see that that there's so kind of almost flexibility to a visualization intervention isn't there Joe there's so much you can do and so much you can kind of change and and manage and um, it's just about making sure you find kind of what's right for you at that very moment because like I mentioned you know uh, something that's kind of self-paced and you can do in your own time before a game is going to be so very different to something that you want to try and do in the moment and in the game itself. Um, yes, self-paced, that's the other part. It has to, has to be a part of it. Yeah, well, because I guess that's something that um, it's a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to do if you're trying to visualise in game, isn't it? Especially if you're playing quite a, a quick sport like basketball. It's very difficult to use imagery. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've never used imagery during a basketball game. The only time I've used imagery during an event at all is when I'm golfing. How hard would you say it would be to, to use it before a free throw? Not as hard. You could make it a part of your pre-shot routine, which is something else we'll probably talk a little bit about. Um, uh, you could just make it a part mm -hmm. of your pre-shot routine if you really wanted to. But if you're struggling to focus, it may be like if you're like, you know, just you just had a fast court break, you got an and one, and now you have to hit a free throw, so you're breathing a little heavy. Like, you might struggle to make that visualization work. Whereas, if you just take a couple deep breaths and go through your routine, you can be calm by the time you're ready to shoot. But you need to be calm to visualize, and you might not be able to get there pre-shot. You know what I mean? Because there's also a 10-second limit to hit free throws. You don't have a whole lot of time. Of course, of course, yeah. I think it's interesting you say about kind of breathing and making yourself calm and that sort of sense and it kind of brings us on to the topic of, of routines rather than visualization on its own um all these things can really complement each other can't they you know you can have something like a deep breathing technique alongside imagery and it can really kind of get you into the right mindset to, to be able to prepare for the game properly yeah um, it's one of the it's one of the millions of reasons anybody who's listening to this is going to hear me say this a lot but uh, mindfulness meditation can be used in literally everything and this is a good example of like the breathing you use in mindfulness can re once again like calm you down and ground you again before you hit your jump before your free throw. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think um, I guess it's almost like kind of a, a missed out aspect of visualization. Um, 
because from what I've been reading, especially medical education, it's almost been an afterthought, you know, someone do a quick little bit of breathing and then imagery happens. Whereas it really needs to be hand in hand. You really need to kind of help get yourself in that mental mental like kind of frame to to go and visualise. It's it's a lot it's difficult, isn't it? Just like for example, if I asked you right now, Bryce, to go and think about yourself taking a free throw, it, it's very hard to just put yourself straight in the moment, isn't it? It's something you kind of need to work up and build up towards. I've kind of done enough mindfulness that I just instantly did it when you said it. But I'm not a good example of it. <laughs> well you just proved my point wrong. <laughs> Visualization and meditation are like my superpowers. But I, I guess maybe, maybe it's a better point for, uh, from the kind of uh, the perspective of some of these students who may not have had too much experience with mental skills or with um, any kind of performance skills interventions. I mean, if I just so run, if I just run up and down a court and then did that, it would've been a lot harder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think it's definitely definitely a, a positive to tie it all into each other and try and create that kind of ideal routine that that might be visualization, might be relaxation, it might be um, what else do we have like self talk, like you mentioned, you know, a bit of positive like come on or like make the shot sort of thing. Um, so yeah, and I think yeah, f- for me, it's it's all about that routine. It can't just be one thing. Yeah, and for like college kids, I would personalize their routine to be a whole team-based thing where you're like um i would work with each individual right so that during their free time during the in the day before between practice and team meals and stuff like that when they get free time that they would do the same things every day so that they'd be it just make the game consistent because that's what you're looking for is just some consistency and that's so hard to find when you're a college student because <laughs> all the desires you have and all the things you want to do <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it's hard to find in just general life. Never mind having for sure conflicting kind of conflicting things like sport and academia. So um, talk a little bit about visualization, meditation, performance. I feel like um, when people we should be a little bit more specific with the pre-performance. Like there's two different versions of the pre-performance routine. It's like before the specific action. So like if you're a golfer before your shot, or if you're a basketball player before your free throw, and then there's the like the whole day before, um, and I think everyone understands like the during the game kind of thing. Like they have a pretty good idea that you're supposed to do the same thing every time. Um, but they don't understand the impact that a day before routine and day of routine can have. I guess it's almost, you could describe it as a little bit of a cheat code. Can't you trying to do it on the day itself and, and, and that alone, do you know, it's very, very much a kind of a, a quick, let's get something done before, like you take your shot in golf. Um, Whereas you kind of really need that full picture of, you know, the days before and the weeks before leading into it as well, rather than just something to use in the moment. You need to come in to every game the same way to perform at your best. You won't play your best every single one of those games, but you'll give your best chance. If you find something that makes you comfortable and ready and like pumped up, it's like listen to the same music before every game, listen, do the same uh, warm up. I think Steph Curry is a good example where you have to do like doing the same thing every time. His warm up for every game is the same every day. Um, he even hits the same like like fan service shot where he's getting ready to go into the tunnel. He'll stand in the tunnel and chuck it from there. And that's like his last shot before he goes in. And he does that same thing every single game. 
and he's obviously the greatest shooter of all time. So you end up with like, and then you watch golfers. They like Tiger Woods has the same shot routine um, for every shot on a round and stuff like that. Like the greatest players always stay consistent, and that's the, the and the best way to do it is just have the same routine every time. And that includes before games, that includes before performances, that includes the day before if it's like a big one where you eat the same meals or do the same visualization, meditation, and relaxation stuff. Yeah, and I, th- I think the big buzzword for this is, you, you, you used it before, is ready and, and readiness, really. It's about feeling ready to go out and perform at your best. And you give yourself the best chance of being ready if you incorporate into this whole routine kind of the, in the days and weeks before you, rather than just on the day itself. Um, and I think it, it can't be understated, that feeling of being ready. I mean... I've had it when I've played cricket, you know, you, you rock up and it might be really early season, you know, when uh, when when kind of games are, are quite in cold temperature and you're kind of not feeling too too much in rhythm and you kind of almost know what a game's going to go like. You know you might be a bit rusty, um, whereas you can kind of compare that towards the end when, you know, you're, you're, you're in full swing and you feel very confident to go out and perform. And that feeling that yeah that, that feeling of readiness is is so important i think for performance and it's it's something that's individual as well do you know like you mentioned with steph curry doing his um doing his fancy shots in the tunnel and i mean even uh, i'm just trying to think of a, a really funny uh, example do you remember the dak dance from uh, last year and the year before no uh, idea what you're talking about you, dak you dance have you not seen that uh dak prescott um in his warmth he did this little like swivel thing almost looked like he was doing a bit of a <laughs> A bit of a, a no idea. I don't. I don't. Have you not seen I'm that? too old for that. Oh. I am too old for that. Anyway, so he was. Do, he, he seemed to be. Um, I think this is what he did when he came back from his injury. Um, and he seemed to do that. You know, this the same kind of thing every single kind of warm up game you see. I and mean, it became a, a bit of a meme for a bit. Anyway, Bryce. Um, but I don't. I'm. I'm too old for this. I don't. I'm not one of them TikTokers. <laughs> but the, the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, like it can be very much individual to everyone. But I guess everyone's striving for that same level of readiness and same level of you know feeling feeling kind of at, at the peak and ready to perform well let's get back a little bit um as we kind of wrap this up talking about we because i feel like we've covered most of the pre-performance stuff like everyone understands the coaching prep about watching film and stuff uh the visualization there's a lot of keys to visualization um that we can't really go over right now but like if you're using it to like get back from an injury or something um it's not just like sitting in your bed and imagining the moment. Like you put yourself in the scenario and that way it best activates the same neurons that fire when you're in the scenario. Um, so the best advice for any listener is to talk to a performance psychologist and they'll walk you through the best ways to use it. Um, but who do you have for your final Ooh. four in the NCAA there you go. So this is from. I have two. Bra- I always fill out two brackets. One that's my heart. And one that's okay, so head. this is a combined one because I have no heart or head in this situation. But, uh, <laughs> for my very uncultured um, guesses, um, thanks, thanks sure. ESPN for the little paragraphs on each team. Um, ESPN's not going to be. I'm going to be okay. So you, you've been saying this a couple times. ESPN sucks. They, they like they're just going to pump up all look, the blue bloods. So you're going to have a very chalk bracket. Rookie friendly. It's all good. Anyway, uh, my final four yeah, is sure. Arkansas versus Murray State. Oh, what? Yeah, and Illinois versus Iowa. Wild! 
See, I knew. I knew it. I knew it. You know, that is wild. To be honest, right, I knew who the big teams are, and I'm a little bit of an underdog kind of, like, favourite, so... Sure. In some of them, I've kind of decided to go with not the big team. I don't have Gonzaga in the Final Four, because they haven't played anybody since November, anybody good since November, and they've been writing, and they still lost in that period. Like, they lost twice in their conference, and their conference is a cakewalk. I had Arkansas beating them. I also have... My my dad had that too. I have UConn beating Arkansas and then UConn beating Gonzaga. Uh, for my my head one has Tech, Kentucky, Arizona, and Providence. Ooh, I have Providence beating uh, Kansas and Wisconsin. I have Wisconsin getting to the Elite Eight and losing to Providence. I my one of the big runs the Cinderella is Colorado State. That's sort of a Cinderella, but they're a five seed. But it's Cinderella because they're not a major conference team. But they started off their year so well. And they've been a very good team all year, um, so I have I have them, and I have Zona Arizona beating Illinois, which they played earlier this year um, in Champaign, Illinois, mm-hmm. and Arizona won. So I, I feel like that that's probably just going to repeat itself. Yeah. Um, so I have Arizona and Providence, and I have Arizona ended up winning the title. I have Purdue losing to Kentucky in the Sweet Sixteen, which would crush me, because like <laughs> all year. Part of the reason is because, like I mentioned, like this team had a lot of high expectations and they haven't met it. Um, and to me, like it doesn't bother me to this point because this whole year I'm like, this is a tournament team. They may not win the conference, but they're going to be a really good tournament team because the way they're designed and the type of players we have. And so I was like, we, I feel like, you know, it's final. It, even if we win a Big Ten championship, we don't make a final four. I'm going to be really disappointed. And so like my emotions won't change much, but I think we're going to lose to Kentucky because we're going to turn the ball over too much. I went for a rogue choice and said Kentucky are out in the first round. They're going to get... Oh, shit. By St. Peter's? Yeah. That's just not going to happen. But literally... I could see Murray State beating them, but I had actually San Francisco beating Murray State. But I could see Murray State beating them. Which, by the way, Murray State versus Kentucky, that's an in-state battle. Okay, okay. Which the other thing is the committee does this thing where they kind of seat everybody. And then they have a bunch of rules they have to follow to fill out where play people play so that like certain teams don't play each other too many yeah. times in a year like, yeah. to try and make it as balanced as possible. But they found a way to put Purdue and IU in the same region, um, which would mean there's a chance that Purdue plays IU in the Elite Eight. And God, I would, I would, I don't know if I could watch that game. <laughs> I would die. If we won, it would be the greatest moment of my life. If we lost, the worst. That's how. That's what yeah. that game would be like. Who am... God, I would be so tough. Who have you predicted as your winner overall? Like, have you selected that yet, though? Arizona. Arizona. I got them in Kentucky in the final, and Arizona beating them. Because I, I don't think Kentucky's actually that good, but I think they got a good draw for the type of team they are. Virginia Tech, if Virginia Tech beats us in the second round, they could beat Kentucky. And Virginia Tech could beat us, so... Interesting. I think I had, a, I had Iowa to an overall. Oh, God, that would also crush me. I was just reading saying they want to kind of like the hottest teams at the moment. In, they in are Washington. shooting, they are playing very well offensively, but they are probably the worst defensive team in the whole tournament. Yeah, but everyone loves a team that just goes all out attack, don't they? <laughs> but, eh, to a degree. No defense, just vibes. Like, for instance, they just played Purdue yesterday in the final of the Big Ten tournament. And uh, if Purdue just if Purdue just has 12 turnovers instead of 19, we win the game. If we just hit, right. we missed four front ends of one-on-one one free throws, which means you if you miss it, you don't get your second free throw. If you make it, you get a second free throw. 
Um, and we missed four front ends, which meant that's eight points right there. And we lost by like four or we lost by like nine, but we were down Ooh. like three with just a few minutes to go or like with yeah, 30 yeah. seconds to go. So it's like, we should have won that game. We beat ourselves in a lot of ways, but they're also a very good team and they shoot well. And Keegan Murray's a great offensive player, but they're so bad defensively. I, I There's no way they make it run. In fact, I think I may it's have them. Big. I have them losing to Providence. And honestly, Richmond. It might be like, it might be like, do you remember Liverpool and the Brendan Rodgers where they literally had like the attack of like Lamborghinis? It's more like, had... uh, it's more like, uh, what's his, what's his name? The Blackpool manager from when they first got up. Oh, Ian Holloway. Yes, it's yeah. more like him, where it's just go, 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 go. Don't worry about that back there. There's nothing going on. Just go. I guess a bit of Bielsa like this year. Sure, yeah, year. yeah. A little bit like Bielsa, where you just go at a thousand miles an hour on offense. And to be honest, they're um, great. Actually, it's really fun to watch them play offense. They're a very good offensive team. And Keegan Murray's very talented, say, but they're so I, I, I think I think they might be the team I follow just because it sounds like they might actually have like very entertaining games if they've got no defense. I, they they can be. It's also frustrating to watch. Um, yeah, I have Providence beating them. I think Providence is really good. I think they're severely underrated, and I think they were underseeded as a four. I feel like they were a three seed. There's a lot of teams that lost some like really close games late in the year that dropped off seeds. Like in the first, like we were a, the number one team in the country, and then we lost on a half, half court shot, and that dropped us like six spots in the AP poll. So it's like I, I think. And then we had um, we got scheduled. We had a scheduled loss where we got blown out by Michigan at Michigan, and that happened because they had a COVID issue and rescheduled it. And it was our sixth game in like, I think it was like six game in twelve days. Oof. Yeah, and that was our last game of that run before we finally got a rest day. So it was like we got a scheduled loss and got blown out, and that put us as a three seed instead of a two or one seed. And like that kind of stuff happened a lot in this bracket, and I think the committee didn't do a great job seeding, to be honest. How um, for these kind of one and out tournaments, how much would you say is down to form? Do you think form plays a part in this, or do you think because it's a one and out, anything can happen in those type of games? It depends. It depends. It depends on how bad the form is. If you're playing really well, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to win. But if you're playing really bad, you're pretty likely to lose. Because you see, so almost like, yeah, I know, I know. In football, it's kind of a bit of a strained, strained comparison. But sometimes the team that falls out of the automatic promotion spots and ends up in the playoffs don't end up winning because yeah. they, they actually are the better team over the season. But because of that lack of momentum, they always seem to kind of like fall off. Yeah, form is, is form. It's it's very similar to that, but it's like, so if like if you're playing really well, it doesn't guarantee you'll win. Um, but like, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like Illinois really stumbled into it, and I feel like they're probably going to lose to. They could they could lose to Houston, even though they're a better team than Houston. They could lose to Houston, and that would not surprise me in the slightest. They could probably lose to Chattanooga, with the way they've been playing lately. So it's one of those things where like they're way better than these teams, but because of how badly they've been playing, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them lose early. But then on the okay. flip side, last year the same, basically the same team. They have one less player. I would assume we went to the NBA, but otherwise, it's basically the same team. They won the Big Ten championship tournament, and they went in and lost in the second round. So it's like it's one of those things. Like it, it doesn't. It's very hard to predict, and that's that's like historically the NCAA tournament. 
In fact, statisticians like Ken Palm and Sagarin and amateurs who were trying to look at all these stats, they always try and pick, like, what's the key stats, right, going into the tournament? And what they always end up getting to is that, like, each of the last six champions have had nine of these 20 statistics. And it's like, that's a coin flip still. <laughs> it's still less than 50%. Yeah, they're, they're like, here's 20 statistics that each of the last six champions have been in the top 10 of. It's like, that's such a random assortment of things that means absolutely nothing and has no value. It's because people like to see patterns in things. Yeah, they're they? desperate it, it, to find the patterns. It, and the truth is, I said this last week, the NCAA tournament is the by it's the most entertaining, but by far the worst way in the world to determine who a best team is. They played 30 games leading up to this and one bad shooting night with college kids, which is like an, a guarantee can knock a team yeah. that's like the best team in the country out. Yeah, especially if you have a good pre-performance routine. Eh? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's, the tournament's pretty much coin flip. I'm fully expecting your bracket to do better than mine. I, I, you know what? I, I've, I've somehow got this false level of security now. Oh, sorry, false level of confidence even that my predictions are amazing. So, I'm backing myself. I mean, you should back yourself as much as anyone else. Like it literally, <laughs> it's a complete coin flip. There's a famous SNL skit with Peyton Manning. Um, they did it in March after an NFL season was over, and he was doing the host. He was hosting as Saturday Night Live. Um, and they did a bit where he was like this tourney expert and he talked about all these statistics and all this stuff um, and how well he did. And it was him across from this like soccer mom who's like, yeah, I really like the mascot and like making choices like that. And she actually won the thing and went on, uh, had a perfect bracket and he lost one. <laughs> and it's like, that's like the perfect example of it. Like it's a complete coin flip that you can do as much as you want. It is pure luck. In fact, Warren Buffett, has had a billion dollar contest going for like eight years for one person to have a perfect bracket and nobody's had it. Oh yeah, I'm not surprised because what the odds on that must be absolutely insane. I think he has like 10 more years before he should expect somebody to come close or something. Yeah. So like, but it's like, and I, and that's for a billion dollars. You think people aren't going to do their perfect research on that? It's a complete coin flip. <laughs> but as someone who's a diehard college basketball person, it means everything. And that's why we're crazy. Yeah, because it's not really psychotic. well covered over here. It's not well covered over here at all, really. It's um, brilliant entertainment. So, like, it's the FA Cup on steroids. <laughs> on steroids? Yes. Now, that's something and it's because heavy. the teams get the same amount of rest days, the same amount of prep, and there's no home field advantage. They're, they're all in neutral courts. So it's the FA Cup on steroids. Yeah, and it's with college students, not professionals. So the money spent on your on your you know development, like the money a, a Chelsea spends for their players, is so is not going to have the same impact if they were like, do you know what I mean? Like the big teams don't have as much of an advantage through just being the big team in co in college sports that they do in professional sports. Oh yeah, yeah, because I, I guess there's a preconception that young players are always pretty inconsistent when they're starting off their careers, so I guess you can't guarantee anything, can you? Yeah, there's always a Cinderella run, which for me, I had Michigan State and UConn um, in one of my brackets, and then my other one was Texas Tech and Providence. There's always a Cinderella run. Those aren't even really Cinderella's. Proper Cinderella's Colorado State making a Final Four. 
or um or like a really good one would be like Longwood who plays Tennessee them a 14 seed them making a final four like that has happened before yeah. and it's happened it happens on a semi-regular basis like Loyola Chicago was an 11 seed and they made an elite eight and I'm fine stuff like that stuff happens all the time yeah well, I'm, I'm actually quite quite stoked quite excited to uh to see uh to see this kind of play out Yes, I'm going to have to do some of my own pre-performance routines just so I don't have a heart attack watching some of these games. So <laughs> I should probably start that right now. <laughs> so uh, we're going to we're going to watch those games together, I think. Yeah, and then I can learn a bit more about about basketball and about the skills towards it. Like I'm not no. I'm not a complete rookie, obviously. I know enough about basketball, but I just don't watch it enough, yeah. so I'm, it should be entertaining. And we'll start like the first four I think starts when does it start? Wednesday. 17th of March. Uh, first four is fifteenth and sixteenth. Oh, uh, so it's Tuesday and Wednesday, the, but those okay. don't those don't count as part of the tournament. But those would be a good place to start, and they're usually right. in the okay. evening. So if you stay up, we can we can talk about those. But we can definitely start Thursday. All right, Corey, when you get off work, we can start watching the yeah. actual games. Yeah, sounds like a plan to me. All right, Swick. All right, um, so we went over some pre-performance stuff. We didn't get a whole lot of detail on that, but it's. We could spend six hours going through the details of all these pre-performance things, couldn't we? I, th- I think, honestly, I think that's why, it, or that's that's why it'd be really hard for a, a psychologist coming into, you know, a college situation if they didn't, if they weren't paid well or they weren't paid for a certain amount of hours, because these performance routines can be so, or must be so individualized to to help everyone. It's not like it's not like there's a plug-in-and-play performance routine, is there? Yeah, and you kind of have to do it with the client, like to know what they're comfortable doing and what they like. Mm-hmm. You have to ask them tons of questions. Yeah, so I think maybe a a generalized kind of podcast is, is sums up pre performance routines quite well, actually. Yeah, I think we did about as good as we could. Yeah, but we could spend literally six hours on all the versions of meditation and all the things you want with visualization, the research on pre performance. But I mean, I I think we did all right. Yeah, yeah, we we've done all right in learned about ourselves along the way as well (laughs) yeah yeah and you've learned about like this you now know like where my true anxiety and psychosis comes from and it's from this tournament (laughs) yeah now i've got a whole history of pity under my uh under my belt now dude that was just like the overview i could go even deeper (laughs) maybe that's another podcast i could start getting into purdue football and you'd just pull your hair out This is a good place to to end it. Um, so next time we'll be listening, we'll be probably talking about the golf, the Masters, with the golf. I think I'm very excited for that tournament. It's my favorite tournament of the year. Yeah, it should be very entertaining, shouldn't it? How how is the Masters perceived in Britain? Like, are you connected in any way to like British golf culture? Um, I feel like not many people watch that much golf here, but then when the Masters comes on, everyone watches it. It's almost like. It's on a similar scale to the Ryder Cup, you know, in terms of that's that's where all the advertisements go, and that's hmm. where all like, um, yeah, it, it's it's kind of it is seen as a big thing. Obviously, one of the biggest things of the year. Um, yeah, it's one of the four majors. But do they treat the U.S. Open or the PGA Championship the no, same way? No chance. So it's like the Open Championship and the Masters get all the advertising. Yeah, yeah basically. Like the U.S. Open, yeah, obviously, makes, the U.S. Open's like interesting, but it's just sure. it doesn't seem significant over here in the coverage. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, that's probably what we'll talk about as the Masters, which I guess is a good thing that it's being lead up to. I think the Open Championship, the Masters are probably my two favorite tournaments. And this year, the Open Championship 
is at St. Andrews, which makes me super happy. Okay, um, but we'll do some. We'll spend a little bit of time. I don't know what we'll talk about with that. I guess. What do you think? I don't know. We'll uh, we'll have to decide what what the situations um, kind of pull up. I guess that's the the maybe something about dealing with the weight of history because like that's kind of how it works or like having to adjust on the fly. Cause like historically first timers never win the masters. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably say adjusting on the fly is the big thing. I mean, especially in, in these big golfing tournaments, you see people remember Spieth from a few years ago, just completely fall apart yeah. when they're, when they've done so much ride across the tournament and one thing goes wrong and you end up getting in that rut. So maybe something to do with how to, uh, how to get yourself out of that. To anybody who doesn't watch golf, they'll be very surprised that I think what we'll end up talking about is the creativity necessary to improvise. Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty good way to, good way to talk about mm-hmm. it. All right. Um, I had a pretty good talk today. How do you feel now? Uh, do you feel more or less confident in your chances? I feel more confident, you know. Uh, I'm Honestly, I'm on this uh, I'm on this Iowa hype now, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm converted. There's a lot of reasons... I'm not going to get too deep into it because a lot of it's very bitter and salt for me <laughs> that why I dislike like to get to Iowa's and Wisconsin's. <laughs> and some of it has to do with like the, uh, the kind of fake Midwestern niceness. But so, I, so I'll, I'll keep it at that. Um, but thanks everybody for listening. Uh, I hope you guys join us next time. When we talk about the masters and I hope everyone watches the tournament and enjoys it. It should be fun. Yep. See you later.